0: Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here this morning, that you've provided a place and a time for us to gather together as your people, and to come into your presence and to learn about you. We ask that you would be with the Sunday school teachers this morning, and that you would help us to teach the truth about you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, kiddos, go with your Sunday school teachers. Good morning, and welcome to part two of our Sunday school series this month on the Great Commission which is to disciple all nations. I'm going to start like I did last week uh, with Deuteronomy 32, two, Moses' prayer that uh, his teaching would drop as the rain, his speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. That's my prayer as well for... Any teaching I get to do, Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20, we read last week, and we'll read again. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles and the disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we make disciples by first baptizing them, then teaching them in this this order of things. How do we teach them? How do we make disciples of new believers? We last week discussed, uh, starting with this book on the Catechizing of the Uninstructed by St. Augustine, a letter to Dio Gratius answering the question of how do I disciple and we went through basically the first four chapters, and the recap of that is that teaching new Christians should cover all of Scripture and church history, but not exhaustively or confusedly, but rather in summary fashion. The history should be traced with more time devoted to critical moments and less to trivial minutiae. We're going to jump into chapter 5 and try to hit 5, 6, and 7. There's only 28 chapters, so we've got two more weeks in the month, so... Things are going well. Uh, With chapter 5, we're going to take a bit of a a detour into some other books to help us understand what Augustine means or how we can apply what Augustine says about understanding the people that are listening to us. So in chapter 5, Augustine exhorts us to examine the person that's coming for instruction. Uh, Scott Oliphant wrote a book called Covenantal Apologetics, where he looks at evangelism and discipleship through the lens of Aristotle's framework for rhetoric. Rhetoric for Aristotle consisted of ethos, pathos, and logos, written there, if you're taking notes. And uh, Oliphant, he describes understanding your audience as construing your audience. Uh, so I'll probably jump between those frames, but those phrases. But that's what I mean by construing uh, your audience, understanding your listener. Why do they want to hear? Why have they come? Augustine told us. We said this last week. We recap this week. A person should want to be a Christian because he's afraid of God, the wrath of God, the penalty of sin. Not because he wants to please man or avoid man's displeasure. It's on the ground of God's severity that the foundation of Jesus Christ's love is to be set. And I was thinking the last time I had a chance to do Sunday school, we were looking at Proverbs, and one of the refrains of Proverbs is that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Or rather, I think the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But what is the end of wisdom? Well, Proverbs is positioned in the wisdom literature, uh, intentionally. And it pushes, it goes from Psalms to Proverbs to Ecclesiastes. And from Psalms, you have uh, an, an exploration of Christian emotions. In Proverbs, an exploration of Christian character. And in Ecclesiastes, an exploration of Christian love. The beginning of wisdom is fear, but the end of wisdom is love. So, how do we pick the exact details? What will be helpful for the listener to hear? The point of rhetoric is that we want to be persuasive. And to be persuasive, uh, we learn from Aristotle, from much experience, from uh, people like Scott Oliphant and Augustine, that we need to pay attention to ethos, pathos, and logos in how we communicate with people. So, ethos is... Think like ethic. It's the rules of how you're going to communicate. And we hear two other things. One is uh, uh, form and content are important in communicating. And in Scripture, we have truth in love. The form needs to be truthful, or the content needs to be truthful, but the form needs to be loving. So ethos is, is about that that form. There's a right way. It's what guards against uh, the seeker-sensitive impulse of flippantly adapting to whatever the culture is looking for at the moment and trying to change our approach in so many ways uh, to draw people in while losing the truth of the gospel or losing the form of worship that we receive in Scripture. That's what ethos can protect against. Ethos is going to ground us in the truth that there is a right way to evangelize and disciple. And that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So our own pastor often encourages us uh, with this simple means of evangelism that all of us can attain to to simply invite people to church. You just invite them to church. It's like the woman at the well. Pastor Proctor often says, she runs into the village and she says, Come with me. I just met a man who knows who told me everything about my life. Can this be the Christ? But we have a parallel in that. If we are struggling, if we are not sure where to begin with evangelism, we can say, come with me. I know a man. He seems to know a lot about my life. He knows about my guilty, sinful shame. And he's got some answers. It's our pastor. Our pastor is sent. He's sent to this pulpit where being sent, We can hear, hearing, we can believe, believing, we can call on the name of Jesus Christ. So there is a simple ethic of evangelism, a right way, and a simple way for us who may not feel completely ready to tackle this on our own. Then we get to pathos. Now pathos is about the passions of the listener, and we do care about how people feel and what they've experienced. It addresses those passions. It recognizes the subjectivity of the individual, their feelings, their thoughts. Uh, And Augustine is encouraging us to do that. We're not insensitive to the individual, to individual um, perceptions or even self-perceptions, even if they're misguided. We're not insensitive to them. We aren't trained psychologists, though, and we're not um, trained rhetoricians, So, construing our audience may seem intimidating, but that's where Scott Oliphant provides something encouraging in his book, Covenantal Apologetics. He reminds us that some of the work of understanding your listener is already done for us in the Scriptures. We know that man is fallen, sinful, depraved, at enmity with God, unwilling and unable to please God, We know about them because we know what the Bible tells us about them, and we know about them because we know ourselves. And we're reminded over and over again in Scripture that the condition of man is a common condition. An example is that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Scripture tells us about man's nature, and so we do know that man's a sinner, that he's dead until made alive, that a believer is a newborn baby that needs milk, Before they can take meat, they need catechizing, discipleship, instruction, and they need to grow into maturity, into the full stature of the man, Jesus Christ. And we know that even though you're a believer, you're still a sinner. Luther says justified, simultaneously justified, and sinner. So there remains work to be done in understanding the listener. Part of it is done for us, but... Who is the individual that you're speaking to? And Paul gives us example uh, that this is important. It's not just Scott Oliphant, it's not just St. Augustine. But Paul gives example of caring about who it is he's talking to. And so in his address at the Areopagus, it says that standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Man of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And then he proceeds to share the gospel with them in light of who they are, what they're familiar with, even referencing their literature uh, and beliefs. So that's a good example, and we heard that uh, in last week's sermon. So Paul, he does uh, something similar in another part of Acts, Acts 23, 6 and 7. Uh, where he says, or it says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. It goes on from there, but this is an example of Paul being attuned to who his listeners were and using rhetoric to accomplish his ends. For Paul, uh, as for Paul, the work for for us remains uh, to be done. So who are you talking to? Is it an old person, a young person, a man or woman? Someone who seems to be fresh out of the bubble wrap or somebody who has hurts, habits, and hang-ups? It might change which details you're going to share with them. You might express to a woman who wishes she had a family or children that God saw Hagar. He remembered Ruth. He heard Hannah. You might share with a recovering alcoholic how the naked, raving lunatic was found dressed and in his right mind talking to Jesus. You might introduce the bereaved to Job or the cuckold to Hosea, the persecuted to David or Elijah, the proud to Saul or Saul, the tenderhearted to Daniel, the objectified woman to Esther. This is what Augustine is talking about when he's saying, what details are you picking out of Scripture? You can summarize. You can tell the same story and hit some of these highlights. You can pick which highlights are a good match for your listener. So you want to understand your audience and what you already know about them and what you need to learn about them. And this is maybe it's been this way all the time, but we know in our day and age that this is something that is uh, real... Point of contention in our culture. It gives a lot of offense. What you already know about them. Our culture hates that. They love to say, you don't know me. You don't know what I've experienced. You don't know what I've gone through. There is a fine line to walk here. Uh, Because we're to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Paul tells us a number of times not to give any offense. uh, That he strives to be all things to all men. An example in Second Corinthians six three we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So on the one side of the fine line, you have the offense of the gospel, but on the other side of the fine line, you have a faulty ministry. We put no obstacle in anyone's way except Jesus, the stumbling stone and rock of offense. Because when we say that he forgives, what else does it mean but that... We have faults and need to be forgiven. So that's pathos. Then there's logos. The logos is the word. For Aristotle, it's the content of the message. For us, obviously, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the logos, the word of God. He's the point of our message. He is the message. Augustine says, summarize the Bible, which is the word of God. He says, Summarize church history, the preparation of the Bride of Christ. So we're summarizing, here is what you need to know about Jesus. Here is what you need to know about Jesus' Bride. And that's what chapter 5 covers for understanding understanding the listener. For chapter 6, Augustine talks about the rule of Scripture. Once you're confident, he says, of the intentions, the sincerity of the person who's coming for instruction, here's a new word, the catechumen, the one being catechized. He says, begin with the rule of Scripture as the foundation of all that follows. Every time the session is examining someone who's coming and wants to join the church, one of the questions that invariably is asked, is what is the Word of God? What do you understand the Word of God to be? What do you believe the Word of God is? And the reason is that the bar for becoming a Christian is very low. Look at the thief on the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. When the session examines people coming, we are not expecting them to know everything the Bible says to know everything the confession and catechisms teach. But I do want to know that they think the word of that the Bible is the word of God and that it's authoritative. Because then we go from being saved new new believers to the preaching that they're going to hear, the teaching they're going to hear, the discipleship that they're going to get, and we need to know going in that we have an authority that we can both go to. Those who know much. And those who know little can both come to the same authority and come to agreement on how we are to live, what we are to understand is is there. And so Augustine in chapter 6 talks about the rule of Scripture. Another way that I see this play out, um, we probably all know someone who is full of stories of strange happenings and miracles that they have heard about on TV, that they've read in a best-selling book from a Christian bookstore, Uh, They may even try to practice some of this naming and claiming of blessings, of healings. And there's discouragement there for them. Some I've seen, nonetheless, in spite of none of that ever happening for them, they still believe, they wish that they could just get their children or their loved ones to believe. They wish that there were a miracle in their own town, in their own house, so that they could then convince their children to believe because the ones that they've attempted haven't worked the children are skeptical but augustine wants to remind us that the signs the miracles they're in the bible they were given to us in the bible and therefore all of us they really happened i'm not sure about these other ones but the ones in the bible that ha- they were witnessed what we have seen what we have heard what we have touched with our hands. This is what we report to you. It's attested. It's witnessed. And we have to remember too, that if we will not believe the signs of Jesus and the apostles, neither would we believe though someone was raised from the dead. So Augustine reminds us that experience, the subjectivity of our experience is not the rule of faith, but scripture. We shouldn't be looking for things that tickle our ears. We should be looking in Scripture for the objective truth. So we're to we've come through the first six chapters, and Augustine has told us we're to summarize redemptive history from creation to now. The details chosen for inclusion. Augustine here gives us a nice analogy, are like a beautiful jewelry, piece of jewelry, a beautiful necklace. And the details we've chosen are the gems. They're the diamonds or the pearls. And then we need to connect those with subtle, uh, efficient strings of gold to fill out the necklace, but we pass over, as Augustine says, the minutia. So chapter 7, we get back to what we cover. And here Augustine actually pushes forward and he adds content that we need to cover. Not just creation and now But we need to then tell the believer, the new believer, about the future, the struggle, and a Christian ethic. And that'll take the balance of today's Sunday school. We'll walk through that a little bit, and we'll wrap it up uh, and come back next week. But when Augustine is talking about the future, he wants to make sure that the new believer understands... That there is a resurrection, there is a judgment, and then there is consummation, uh, the, the coming into glory for the new believer, or else wrath for the unbeliever. And so, with the resurrection, you want to remind them that one of the oldest books in the Bible, maybe the oldest book in the Bible, Job, it's all about resurrection. Job teaches from the beginning of recorded scripture, I will see my Redeemer with my own eyes, in my own flesh. Abraham believed it too. We learn that explicitly in scripture, in Hebrews, because it says that he believed that if he killed his son, he would receive him back from the dead. He knows there's a resurrection. And Paul, uh, we see that in the New Testament as well, right? Jesus, uh, rebukes the Sadducees about their unbelief in the resurrection. And Paul, as we heard in addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, says it's about the hope in the resurrection that I am preaching to you or that I'm standing here on trial. And in Athens, similarly, the whole thing wraps up somewhat anticlimactically with them saying, this guy's talking about resurrection. He's a madman. And others say, we'll hear you more on this subject. But it's about the resurrection. So Augustine wants us to make sure that the new believer understands that there is a resurrection we will come into judgment body and soul and into judgment it 's okay to coach the defendant, the accused, on what to say when he gets into the courtroom this is this is important. Um, That is what we need to make sure we understand about the judgment. We're going to stand in a courtroom, and Job talks about this too. He sets the whole, oh, if I could stand in the courtroom with God, if I could open the doors and he's sitting on the bench and I could lay my case out before him, this is going to happen. And the new believer needs to know what to say. And of course, what you need to say is, guilty as charged please, don't look at me. Look at that man over there. Jesus Christ. Look at him before you pass sentence. We need to know that there is a judgment. And I I often think of these words from uh, one of my favorite Christian poets. "To, To be so completely guilty And given over to despair. To look into your judge's face and see a savior there. That's what we're looking for in the courtroom. And then glory. To understand that we will enter this rest that God has prepared for us to dwell in his presence for the rest of eternity. So we want to impress those things upon the new believer, an understanding of what the future holds. But then there's the struggle. The struggle, Augustine summarizes with three words. I'm going to add a fourth. He says heresy. I'm going to say heresy and error. Um, And then suffering and temptation. Heresy and error, suffering and temptation. It's important for the new believer to understand that the church is harried with blemishes, with errors, and to be prepared for that. We don't want to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. See, I have warned you beforehand. These are common refrains in Scripture. Many fall away because of heresies and errors. Either they're swept up in the tide of them themselves, or they, they recognize them in a self-righteous way the foibles and the hypocrisies of the the church, and it hardens their hearts and they leave. We've got to make sure that we understand our expectations are set. The church is the bride of Christ, but she's still coming of age. She's still going through puberty. She's got some blemishes. She's not ready for the wedding day, the day where Christ is purifying her and the way that every bride wants, everyone wants the bride to look when she walks down the aisle. We're not there yet. And the new believer needs to understand that. From the start, the new believer must be careful to stick to the simplicity of the gospel, to read the scriptures with the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the church truth, and also to be humble when they start to see the failures of individuals and of the church, to be humble. To look at the log in their own eye, to esteem themselves less worthy than others. Not to think of themselves more highly, but to esteem others more worthy than themselves. But then there's suffering. And in suffering, there are those who come to the Christian faith and they think, this is the ticket. I'm not going to suffer anymore. All my problems are going to go away. And what a disappointment that's going to be if we let them think that instead of making sure they understand the suffering continues. Um... There is comfort and hope uh, in the Christian faith, for sure. Uh, But the suffering doesn't all go away. Because there's consequences for sin. And many of us, all of us, we're dealing with those consequences to greater or lesser degrees in our mind, in our body. They're broken by sin. We're broken people. But we're also suffering from the consequences of the sins that other people have committed against us. And those hurts maybe don't go away. But we're also suffering from the consequences of our own sin that we've done for ourselves. And that doesn't just go away. So suffering continues. In Christ, we have forgiveness, comfort. We have a future and a hope. There will be a happy ending, but we're not saved out of suffering. We're not brought out of suffering. We're brought through suffering. He comes with us. He suffered with us. And he walks with us through suffering. And then there's temptations. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These things don't go away either. There are some that think, uh, okay, I, I confessed. I stood up in front of everyone. I was baptized. I'm taking the Lord's Supper. But I went home this week and I, I got angry again, like I used to. Yeah. Warn them. That's going to happen. The battle, the war is won. And King Jesus is marching to the victory. But there are skirmishes that remain. There are battles that are continuing. There are constant pitfalls to avoid. They come from within and without. We fall into sin again and again. That's why we need to stick together. Because if one falls down and they're alone, there's nobody there to help them. But if one falls down And there's someone there to lift them up. Two are better than one. Jesus was tempted. Of course, we're going to be tempted. But dying more and more to sin and living more and more to Christ. This is a good transition from the struggle that we face to outlining a Christian ethic. how How we should then live. John Owens wrote a book, or uh, several treaties actually, that's been compiled into a book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation. The treaties are about mortifying sin, about temptation itself, about the nature of indwelling sin. And it's very helpful for us to understand that Christian life is a battle. There's a war going on. For a Christian ethic, I've heard it uh, summarized that the Christian theology is a theology of grace. The Christian ethic is an ethic of gratitude. We are to live in thankfulness for what God has done for us. But it comes back to love as the motive. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I command. Has anyone seen uh, Shakespeare's Henry V? Heard it, read it, familiar? I'm going to assume that was a yes. Because when I asked about Treasure Island, nobody raised their hands, but I know you've all read it. So now I know that you've all read Henry V or watched it. In case you haven't, it's the king, he's, uh, he's fighting for a throne in France. right? It's just a political dispute. This elements of it make you think it's kind of a useless war. It's kind of sad. It's a lot of killing and slaying for no good reason. But I think Shakespeare was up to more with Henry V, than just that. See, before he was king, he was a dissolute young man, Harry, a rollicking, binging fellow who surrounded himself with cads and barmaids, and his friends were Falstaff, the glutton and winebibber, Pistol, the swindling deserter, Nim, the cowardly idolater, Bardolph, the thief, he's a church pilferer, Mistress Quickly, a loose woman, and the boy, the boy. They were a greedy, reviling, drunken, immoral group. But Harry is crowned king and he begins a conquest within and without. One by one, his friends meet their end. The glutton, the drunk, he dies of starvation, banished to the land of sobriety. The deserter runs away and is no more. The coward dies, looting Dead soldiers. The thief is executed. The loose woman is abandoned and succumbs to a venereal disease. Until at last, the war kills the boy. And the man emerges, a righteous king, Henry V, just and merciful to take his crown. That all happens in the play. I commend it to you. Uh, It's very enjoyable. It's a picture of the Christian life, the Christian ethic. It's a struggle. If you're not putting sin to death, death uh, sin is putting you to death. That's what John Owen says in these treaties. It's an active, ongoing putting to death of sin. Putting to death the old man and living as a new creation in Christ. This is the Christian ethic, but it's motivated by love and it. smells, it tastes of thankfulness. Okay, we're running out of time. So that kind of rounds up chapters 5, 6, and 7. You need to understand your listeners. You can put ethos, pathos, and logos to work for you. Scripture is the final authority for faith and practice. And the new believer needs to understand not just... Redemptive history from creation to now, but what the future holds. That gives us a lot of comfort. That there's a struggle that continues. But that we are being worked on by the Holy Spirit. It says, I uh, will finish the work I have begun in you. And so there is great reason for comfort and hope. Next week, I hope to jump into some examples of summarizing Scripture We'll use some from the Bible, and then we'll use some of my own invention, and then the week after, we'll attempt to uh, summarize church history in 30 minutes. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would bless this time. Help us to prepare our minds for the worship that you are calling us to. Help us to worship in spirit and truth.